uh, it is good uh, to be here with you. Uh, whether you're joining us uh, on site or you're online, uh, I'm glad to be here uh, with you. Uh, happy Mother's Day to you moms here. Uh, I came from Lockport this morning and on Mother's Day wanted to bring our whole family so that we could be uh, together. So Becky and I have been married for about 13 years. Uh, we have three little boys, twin uh, boys Luke and Levi are seven and Zeke uh, turns four here in just a couple of months. Um, so it's loud at our house. Um, it's very energetic at our house and there's something always happening at our house. And so poor mom on Mother's Day is the only girl in our house every day. And so we're doing our best to spoil her uh, with everything that we've got. So uh, happy to be here. Really, it's been about a year since we've been here at Trinity Alliance. Uh, Pastor Brian and I serve in the Northeastern District on the District Disciple Making Ministries team together and have uh, developed a relationship over the last three or four years. And I really enjoy being with him and happy to be here when he can't be uh, to kind of help uh, fill, the, fill the pulpit for him and share just what God has laid uh, on my heart. So uh, we've been in Lockport for about seven years, uh, but before that, uh, we were right here in Gates. Uh, I was the youth pastor at Parkminster Church right on the corner of Pixley and Chile uh, for about six and a half years. Uh, so we're familiar with the area, excited to be back, and uh, thankful for all that God is doing here at Trinity Alliance Church. Uh, so I'm going to pray, and then we will open God's Word together. God, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. Uh, thank you so much for your word and the gift that that is to us. We pray that you would use this time to speak to us, uh, to challenge us, to encourage us, uh, and to help us to be better. Help us to follow you um, in the way that you've called us to. And Lord, we pray that you would receive the glory in all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, you're, you're probably familiar with the Lord's Prayer. Uh, some of you know it by heart. Uh, it's even surprising to me the number of people who have no affiliation with the Christian faith that know the Lord's Prayer. Uh, it, it, it comes as a part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. We also see it in the Gospel of Luke. And it goes like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's a beautiful prayer. It teaches us how to pray. It's poetic. It's been put to music and sung. We teach it to our children at a very young age. I've had the privilege and honor of reading that at the bedside of somebody who's getting ready to meet Jesus face to face. There's powerful words there. It speaks of a heavenly father, a divine kingdom, daily needs, salvation from evil. What's not to love about all of those things? And yet, in there, it also talks about forgiveness. And that's kind of what we're going to talk a little bit about this morning. Who does not love the virtue of forgiveness, especially when it's being offered to you, when you're the one receiving it, right? Verse 12 in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. See, forgiveness, it's a tricky thing. We understand it. We appreciate it. We value it. We want it to be offered to us quickly, but if a lot of us are honest, it's a little bit harder for us to offer that to others 
who have wronged us, who have sinned against us. Those we hardly know and those we know well, still that idea of offering forgiveness can be tricky. So this morning, we're going to see what Jesus has to say about that. So if you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to join me in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 18. Uh, we're going to spend most of our time there this morning. And since the end of March, uh, Pastor Brian's been leading you through a series here called Hope in the Dark, where you've been talking about real faith in the real world. And you've really looked at some hard topics. And, and if you can get a grasp on those hard things, they help you to give hope to the world. They help you be hope to the world, and they give you hope in the way that you live. And you've looked at things like injustice and dealing with preconceived notions and waiting on the Lord, which is so hard sometimes. And even about the forgiveness of God and how that, has, that can change the past and the future. And so what I want to do this morning is build on that a little bit. I want to look at this idea of why we should forgive and how we should forgive. And we're going to look um, at Matthew 18 to kind of do that. So the big idea this morning, if you're a note taker, uh, is that your forgiveness of others is an outward display from you of what's already been done for you. So the way that you forgive others is a visible display of what has already been done for you. So Matthew 18, where we'll be today, we're going to jump in at a familiar parable that you probably know. But I want to give you some context of Matthew chapter 18. Because at the very beginning of the chapter, the disciples come to Jesus and they start saying, you know, Jesus, we want to know who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who's the greatest? And Jesus kind of turns their thoughts upside down and he basically says, the way that you're thinking about this is wrong. Because the greatest is the least. And he says, what you're doing here is you're, you're talking about pride. And he kind of starts discussing this whole idea of sin. And so the disciples, what they're, they're doing at the beginning of Matthew 18 is they're presenting themselves in a prideful way, and Jesus is calling them to humility, and he starts to teach them a little bit about that. Then in verses 15 through 20, uh, this is the biblical basis for handling conflict and sin. If your brother sins against you, here's what you should do. And then we get to our text this morning, starting with verse 21. And Jesus continues his teaching fueled by a question from Peter. So look at me, or look at uh, Matthew chapter 18 with me, starting with verse uh, 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven and so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the subject of forgiveness. And not just forgiveness, but grace-based forgiveness. Forgiveness is, is, is such an important thing that we get a grasp on. And, and we're going to look at these words that are straight out of the mouth of Jesus on what it means to be a forgiving people and what that looks like. And so we're going to see three lessons about forgiveness from Jesus here in Matthew chapter 18. And the first one comes from the verses that we just read. We should forgive without keeping track. We should forgive without keeping track. Peter's having a conversation with Jesus here, right? He pretty much, he's walked with Jesus for a while. He gets the gist of what Jesus is about. Jesus is really radical in the way that he operates. He's radical in his generosity. He's radical with his time. He's radical with his patience and forgiveness. 
Peter has watched Jesus deal with all kinds of people throughout their time together. And particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, we see Jesus deal with these self-righteous Pharisees over and over again. And Peter, on the heels of what Jesus says earlier, says, okay, how many times should we forgive? Right? In verse 15, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, and Peter's like, okay, if my brother sins against me, how many times do I need to forgive my brother? I think it's a fair question. Peter's not new to the world, right? He understands how relationships work. He's lived a day in the life of a human being. He knows that people will disappoint you. He knows that people will sin against you over and over and over again. And just so you know, when Peter says seven times here, Peter thinks he's being very generous. Because in Jewish law, a lot of the rabbis taught what you needed to do was you needed to forgive somebody not once, not twice, but three times. And once you've forgiven them three times, then that was, that was enough. Right? So the common principle of forgiveness is that it would be offered three times. And so Peter, I can almost see Peter. I relate to Peter in Scripture. He messes up a lot. He, he talks a lot without thinking. I, I do the same thing. Right? I can almost see Peter right here saying, Oh, watch this, boys. I'm about to impress the teacher. I'm about to impress Jesus with what I'm going to say. Jesus, when somebody sins against us, how many times should we forgive them? Oh, Jesus, you don't have to answer. I'm going to go ahead and answer this for you. Maybe you remember back when you were in school and that kid that asked the question and then answered the question at the same time always annoyed me, right? That was, the, that, was that kid that was like, oh, here we go again. But he says, I, Jesus, I'm going to answer this question. I'm going to ask you this question. I'm going to answer it seven times. That's double what the rabbis teach plus one. That's got to be enough. That sounds pretty impressive. Seven times. I know. I've followed you long enough. Retaliation is not the right path for the disciples. Right? We should be better than that. Forgiveness is a quality that we should prize, but to what extent? We've got to put a number on it. Forgiveness should be practiced, but there's got to be some moderation there. Seven times. That surely should be enough, right? We don't want Christians to be treated like doormats. We don't want to get walked over and over and over again. I mean, if we offer this grace of forgiveness too many times, people will just keep sinning against us. Seven times seems very generous. Seven times seems very respectable. It's generous to the person who's wronged me. It's self-respectable to me. Seven times seems like a good answer. Well, what does Jesus say in verse 22? He says, I do not say to you seven times. That's not my answer, Peter. You're not quoting me here. But 77 times. And some of your translations might read seven times 70 times. And now for the mathematicians in this room, Jesus is not saying that when you reach 490 times of forgiving somebody, you're off the hook and you don't have to do it anymore. Right? Jesus is speaking in hyperbole. He's saying there's no limit that you and I should put on the forgiveness that we offer other people. Why? Because to put a limit on it inevitably makes us the judge of the other person. Right? I'm keeping track of all the things that you've done wrong. I might not have a book in front of me. I might not have a ledger or a notebook, but I'm keeping track in my head. And, and you're getting very close to the number of times that I have to forgive you. And man, 487, 488, you're two away, and then I don't have to do it anymore. Right? I've been monitoring. This is a tricky thing. This is, this is a tough thing. Paul understands this later in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, why this is going to be a problem. When he talks all about the love 
the love passage that we all know about. He says what? Love keeps no record of wrongs. And it's very easy sometimes to keep record of wrongs that other people have done. And it's, it's very easy, at least for me, and maybe you're this way as well, to remember the wrongs that other people have done, but very conveniently forget the ledger of all the wrongs that I have done to other people. And, and, and so we want to make sure that we're aware of those things. How easy it is that we see the mistakes and sins in others, but it's so hard to see that in ourselves. Right? Jesus addresses this early in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 7 when he says we should deal with the, the plank or the log or the two-by-four in our own eye before we deal with the speck in our brother's eye. You see, for Jesus, forgiveness was not to be petty. Forgiveness was not to be measured. It was not for us to sit in the seat of the judge. Forgiveness was to be a lifestyle. A lifestyle of forgiveness. We are, it is to be wholehearted. It is to be constant. We are living in a state of being forgiving. So the first lesson that we learn about forgiveness from Matthew chapter 18 is that we should forgive without keeping track. The second lesson that we're going to learn is by a parable that Jesus tells us. We should forgive others with the forgiveness of, that God has offered us as a reference. We should forgive others with God's forgiveness as a reference. Look with me at verses 23 and following. He says this, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement... A man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay everything back. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. When the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. It's a tragic story. And Jesus is using a first century understanding of what happened when there was such a, so great a debt that you owed that you couldn't pay it back. And what I want you to notice here as we start talking about this is the similarity between the two people that this story references. Both of these individuals were servants. They both served in the same house. They both had the same master. They're both in debt. And they both have the exact same response to the person that they owe the debt to. They make the same appeal, almost word for word. But that's where the paths diverge. The response to each is completely different. Verse 24 references a total of 10,000 talents that he's owed. In the Old Testament, a talent was a unit of weight anywhere between 58 and 80 pounds. And in the New Testament, it was a financial reference. It would be the equivalent, one talent is the equivalent of 20 years of payment to a daily worker. One talent is 20 years of daily work. His common payment was one denarius for every day 
and one talent was 20 years salary. So just to put this in modern day Rochester, New York context, in the state of New York, the minimum wage is $13.20 an hour. If you worked 40 hours a week, 52 weeks a year, that would make you $27,456 a year. So to kind of understand that now, 10,000 talents is 200,000 years of labor. That's 60 million working days. In modern money, the, the equivalency is anywhere between 3.5 and $6 billion. That's billion with a B. That's a lot of money. 10,000 talents is essentially saying, hey, you make $27,000 a year, but you owe me $3.5 billion. Are we ever going to be able to pay that back? Is that ever something in this lifetime that's going to happen? No, you're never going to be able to pay that back. It is insurmountable. It is an inconceivable amount. It is literally impossible to do. I want to recognize that. This is what the first servant does in verse 26. He says, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay everything back. I will pay it back, he says. That's impossible. But he's going to do everything that he can. How does a minimum wage worker pay back $3.5 billion? He can't do it. So hold that thought, and we want to talk about the next guy. He owes the first servant 100 denarii. Now, to be clear, that's not chump change. That's 100 days worth of work. That's four or five months' salary. It's no small figure. It's not like, hey, you, you owe me 20 bucks. Can you Venmo that to me? This is, hey, you owe me a significant amount of money. We need to sit down and figure out a way that you can pay this back. It's a lot of money, but compared to $3.5 billion, it's unbelievably tiny. But the same question and the same response in verse 29. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay you back. I can make this right. Now, out of the two, which one seems more logical? Well, I can, we can write something down. We can figure out a plan to make back 100 days worth of work. But what's so inconceivable and unimaginable is that the first one is forgiven. He says, you're forgiven. And verse 27, the master not only decided to, to not throw him in jail, to, to not put him in prison, but he just said, you know what? That money that you owe me, just forget it. You don't owe that to me anymore. And he wiped it clean. The first servant says, you know, if you let me out, if I will do everything I can. You can garnish my wages from now into eternity. I will pay you back. I will do everything. And the master says, you know what? It's okay. You don't owe me anything. Not a penny. It's wiped away. And that's the point that Jesus is making about the good news of the gospel. That the debt that you and I have to God is so great, so insurmountable, so immeasurable that we could do a thousand lifetimes of work and good works and everything that we can and, and try to do everything right and we could still never pay him back. It's an insurmountable unbelievable, overwhelming debt that we owe. And we may, you might say, well, you know, I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm not as bad as that woman. So maybe that debt that you say that I owe isn't as much as you say that I owe. I haven't been horrible. I haven't done everything right, but I don't live perfectly, but I'm not so bad. And I think one of the things that we do in our world is we forget what sin is. And even the smallest amount of sin, right? What is sin? It's, it's an act of rebellion against God. 
Sin is saying, God, I want to, I want to be on the throne. I want to decide what's right in my life. I want to do what I want to do. I want to think what I want to think. I want to determine my decisions. I want to determine my worth. I want to do what I want to do. And any act of that, great or small, any single violation of what God lays out for us is sin. And it puts us in debt to Jesus because sinful people cannot stand before a holy God. And the good news of the gospel is that anyone who believes in Jesus, that he came and that he died on the cross in our place for our sins, and that he rose again from the dead, anyone who believes in him asks him for forgiveness, saying, I have nothing to bring. I cannot pay this back. I have not enough time, not enough energy, not enough good, not enough money, not enough anything. Have mercy on me. I'm appealing to you not based on how good I am, but how holy you are, how awesome you are, how amazing you are, how graceful you are. And God says, I forgive you. I don't hold that debt against you anymore. I release you. That's amazing. That's an incredible gift that God has given us. And then this story takes a tragic turn. That same servant, the one who's been forgiven a lifetime's worth of debt, will not, not that he cannot, he will not forgive the debt of another. And that's the challenge that Jesus is putting in front of Peter and the rest of the disciples. And that's the reality that he's wanting to address with us. Right? The servant's unwillingness to forgive, even, even after he's been forgiven so much, reveals the true character of the servant. Verses 31 and 32. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. And went and told their master everything that had happened. When the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. You wicked servant, he said. See, we can easily forget how hard sin is to defeat if we just forget how seriously God calls us to take it. I want to remind you here, we're in Matthew chapter 18. Go back with me. Jesus is talking to his disciples in verses um, 8 and 9, and he says this. He says, If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into the fire. What's Jesus talking about here? He's talking about the reality of how hard sin is to deal with and how seriously we ought to be taking it. The problem is, we are really good at finding the sin in other people's lives, at taking the sin in other people's lives seriously and not the sin in our own lives seriously. Which is why it's sometimes so hard to forgive other people when they've done wrong to us. Right? If, if we don't feel like they've taken their sin as seriously as we've taken their sin, if they haven't groveled in it, if they haven't apologized, if they haven't done enough self-deprecating acts, if they haven't said enough I'm sorry, if they haven't done enough of what we decide that they've taken it seriously enough, then we won't forgive them. And if they do all these things, then and only then and maybe then will we forgive them. That's how we think. That's what we do sometimes. But is that how Jesus does it? Right? Jesus is commonly confronting and correcting 
all throughout his teachings in the Gospel of Matthew, the idea of being self-righteous, right? That's the issue that he has with the Pharisees over and over and over again. Because when you're self-righteous, it undoubtedly leads to forgiveness because we think that we are better than other people. We think that we are up here and they are down here, and because of that, we don't have to forgive. I think about different criminals and the different crimes that they've created. I, I, I don't think anybody in this room has a rap sheet as long as Milton Philip Edwards. If you printed out all the things that he's done wrong in his life, that sheet of paper that put it, printed off a police printer that apparently doesn't separate pages prints out to 30 feet, 4 inches long. 30 feet, 4 inches long. Larceny, trespassing, breaking out of jail, 40 felonies, 34 misdemeanors, many crimes and small punishments. He's done a lot of things wrong. Does he deserve forgiveness? Or, or, or then there's people who, who have maybe not done so many crimes, but the, the gravity of those crimes are just so profound. The United States, Thailand, and Spain, and just a couple other countries, allow for consecutive prison sentences, well beyond the lifespan of any human being. To give an example, Terry Nichols was convicted of helping Timothy McVeigh carry out the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing. That bombing killed 168 people. 19 of them were children. And he tried to pull out at the very end. He did, decided he didn't want to be a part of it, but he was already in it enough. And he was found guilty, and he was sentenced to 161 life sentences plus 9,300 years in prison without the opportunity for parole. And that's not the world's longest prison sentence. The world's longest prison sentence was imposed on a woman from Thailand who was a part of a pyramid scheme. She was like a fraudster, and she was found guilty, and she was sentenced to 141,078 years in prison. 141,078 years. What's crazy is after eight years, she was released. So, so from 141,000 to eight, and she was released. Now imagine this woman was your friend. And imagine how crazy, but you were going to meet her for lunch, and for whatever reason, you were a half an hour late. She was sitting in the restaurant. You got caught up in traffic. You got distracted. You took a phone call, and you're half an hour late. You walk into the restaurant, and she makes that face at you. Like, what are you doing to me? You're a half an hour late. Why would you do that to me? You're 30 minutes late. Do you realize I've been, I, what I could have done? I, you, you really put me out by doing this. We want to just pause and say, you know, you, just to be clear, you were once the recipient of a 141,000-year prison sentence, and you're upset at me over 30 minutes even though 141,000 got knocked down to eight. Let's pause and take a deep breath, right? And the truth is we can see the, the, the messed up way of thinking, the insanity in that, but, but we need that same perspective in our own life. You see, the word forgiveness means to let go. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Right? We, we, when we don't forgive, when we hold on to that, we're the ones who suffer. We're the ones who are, are caught up in our own prison. Psalm 103 reminds us about the character of God. Psalm 103 says this, Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. Verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. We have been forgiven more than we can even begin to fathom. 
verse 15 of Matthew chapter 18. If your brother sins against you, Peter says, how often do I need to forgive my brother when he sins against me? The context of this is like Christian relationships, right? This is when, when my brother, when, when a fellow Christian sins against me. And I would say as a pastor, we see this is some of the areas where the deepest hurts are in Christian relationships because maybe we have this inordinate, unreasonable expectation of others. After all, if they profess to be Christians, they should act in a Christian way, right? That makes sense. I don't disagree with that. But we don't always hold ourselves to the same standards that we hold other people to. We decide... We judge ourselves based on our intentions and we judge other people based on their actions. And sometimes that's where we get things mixed up. Am I expecting perfection from others when I myself am far from perfect? Do I hold on to unforgiveness because they have done something terrible to me? You know, we hear over and over again, I know that the Bible tells me to forgive, but you don't understand what this person has done. And I... I know there are people who have walked through really, really hard things. And I also know what the Bible says. The challenge in the context of church is when people sin against one another, we see this commonly, right? What do we do? How do we deal with that? Well, we have two options, right? We can forgive, we can let go, or we can hold on to unforgiveness. And unforgiveness produces in us this, this root of bitterness that... that that makes us unrighteous, that makes us cynical, that makes us self-righteous, that causes us to doubt, that causes us to judge. And I don't think anyone in here wants to live that way. We, we hang on to those things. That's what it produces in us. Which takes us to the third lesson on forgiveness. And this is kind of the big idea for today, right? We show others we have been forgiven by God when we forgive others. Jesus continues with his final statement here in Matthew chapter 18, verse 35. He said, this is how my heavenly father will treat you, treat each of you, unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Now, Jesus is not making forgiveness of our sins conditional on if we forgive each other. Because, what does the Bible say in Ephesians? It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not by works. This is nothing that you can do. But Jesus is acknowledging here what he also mentioned at the end of the Lord's Prayer, right? Your forgiveness of others is an outward display from you of what's already been done in you. What's already been done for you. We've got to understand that Christians are the most forgiven people on the planet. Therefore, we should be the most forgiving people on the planet. And for those of you in here who profess to be Christians, and I don't know all of you, and I don't presume that everyone does, but as a point of self-reflection as a Christian, how would you say that you are doing with forgiveness? Not in a concept thing. I think most of you would agree with the things that we've talked about this morning, but I'm talking practically. Are you a living a lifestyle of forgiveness? Are you making that constant and wholehearted in the things that you do? And just to clarify, right, where we don't want to be heard is, you know, if a criminal activity has taken place, you're not to ignore what God has in intended the government to do, right? Our forgiveness does not derail legal proceedings in the case where the law has been broken. If somebody breaks into your house and robs you, it's not that you don't call the police. If you've suffered abuse of some kind, it's not that you just ignore that and pretend it didn't happen and don't talk to somebody about it. That's not the same conversation, but we're talking about the relational debt that we are keeping people in because of the, the way that we act and how we don't forgive or how we do forgive. There's a great little book uh, by Ken Sandy. It's called Resolving Everyday Conflict. And uh, he writes the following. 
He says, remember this, forgiveness is not three things. Forgiveness is not a feeling, it's not forgetting, and it's not excusing. Forgiveness is not a feeling, it's not forgetting, and it's not excusing. You don't want to minimize anything that anyone has gone through or experienced because some of you have dealt with deep, deep hurt. And what I'm saying is forgiveness, the Bible teaches us, should be a lifestyle, should be what we do. We do it without keeping track. It's not something that we wait until we feel like it. A lot of times God's word calls us to do things and we have to act by faith and not by feeling, right? We know that the Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all else. And if we live based on our feelings, that's not a great way to live. It's not a forgetting. It's not like you suddenly have amnesia and forgot about the things that have been done to you. That you forgot that any wrong has ever happened. That's not what's being spoken about here. It's not saying that you put yourself in the same situation over and over and over again. It's not forgetting the things that you've done, right? Forgiving and forgetting, we know, are two very different things. And it's not excusing, right? You're not, you're not saying, oh, well, they were just having a bad day. Oh, well, they're dealing with a lot of stress at work. Oh, well, they were in a desperate situation, right? It's not excusing the facts that they've, they've done things wrong. It just means that we are still going to offer forgiveness. You don't minimize the wrong that's been done to you. He goes on to say in that book, Resolving Everyday Conflict, forgiveness is a radical decision not to hold an offense against the offender. He goes on to say, you can either take payments on a debt or you can make payments. You take payments on a debt from other sin in many ways. You might withhold forgiveness, dwell on a wrong, be cold and aloof, give up on the relationship, inflict emotional pain or gossip, lash back or plot revenge against the one who hurt you. These actions might give you a moment of dark satisfaction. I've got a niece, and she's so funny because somebody does something wrong to her, and she, like, already starts thinking about how she's going to get back at them. And, right, we've, we've done that. Somebody's done something wrong to us, and we're like, I just can't wait to get even, right? And sometimes that for a minute, you're like, yeah, that'll feel really good. But we pay a high price for that. Someone once said, unforgiveness is the poison that we drink hoping others will die. Unforgiveness is, the, is what we do to ourselves. It's what we inflict on ourselves hoping that it will hurt somebody else. And the truth is, when we hold on to unforgiveness, we're not punishing anybody but ourselves. Forgiveness gives us the opportunity to set that free. Forgiveness means to let go. And so this morning, I want to be biblically clear and at the same time, sensitive to the many of you in this room who have gone through some hard things, oftentimes at the hands of other people. Forgiveness doesn't necessarily obligate you to act like things didn't happen, to excuse that behavior away, but it says that we are to forgive. Forgiveness is more of an expression of how you hold this act against you, right? It's that, it's that I'm constantly keeping it here, and, and it, it makes me bitter, and it makes me angry, and it keeps me captive. Forgiveness isn't easy, right? If, if forgiveness was easy, we wouldn't have to talk about it all the time. We wouldn't struggle with it all the time. It's costly. And no one knows that better than God himself. See, to forgive you and to forgive me of our sins took nothing less than the crucifixion of the Son of God, right? Jesus laid down his life for you and for me, for our sins, for the things that we have done wrong. He took the wrath of God that we deserve and he took that on himself. See, nobody understands the costly price of forgiveness more than God does. And yet it's that reminder to you and I that allows us to go to him 
in prayer and say, God, I need your help to forgive my brother. God, I need your help to forgive this person who has wronged me. And as we close this morning, I, I just want to ask you a question. It's not to write down. It's not to say out loud. It's just to think about. Who comes to your mind right now as somebody that you need to offer forgiveness to? Is there that person in your life that you are holding them in relational debt because of something that they've done to you? And my question is, why will you go another day? Why will you let another night pass without forgiving them? And for those of us in here who do not have a relationship with Jesus, I want you to recognize that God's offer of forgiveness is right here. Grace upon grace, promises of forgiveness, repenting of our sins and trusting in him. He promises that he will forgive. He will wipe that slate clean. There is no amount of debt that you could have done, no crime you could have committed, no sin that is too deep, no thing that has pushed you too far away that he cannot wash away and overcome. So the question is, do you believe that? Forgiveness is a powerful, powerful thing. Unforgiveness can cripple us, and forgiveness can help to set us free. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for uh, the opportunity to talk about hard things. Lord, we know that uh, there are a lot of things that happen in life, a lot of things that don't go the way that we want them to, a lot of bad things that happen to us that aren't necessarily the consequences of our own decisions, but uh, just the sinfulness in others, and there's a lot of hurt that we carry. And Lord, we, we may have been holding on to that for a long time. I pray that you would help us to think about those things in the eyes of uh, what you have done for us. Lord, you have been so generous to us. Help us to be generous with others. You have been uh, such a God who has offered so much grace to us. Help us to be gracious to others. You are a God who has forgiven us of so much. Help us to forgive others. Lord, we know that we don't always have the, uh, the power to do that in our own spirit. So we ask that you would work in us by the power of your Holy Spirit and help us to accomplish these things. We pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.